Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. With a potential government shutdown less than a week away, military families are worried about what a government shutdown could mean for them. A September 2023 survey found that 84% of currently serving military members said they would be greatly or somewhat impacted by a government shutdown. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric has the details. Kirsten, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Congress has until November 17th to pass funding. If it does not and the government shuts down, how would this impact military families? Impact military families in several ways. So you have the financial impact. There's also a potential disruption of services like health care and child care, food insecurity and morale. Gotcha. All right. And so can you kind of delve into both of those areas and break down what you mean by that? Absolutely. So for the financial impact, a third of military families have less than $3,000 in savings. You know, this isn't enough to cover rent, bills, groceries, childcare, when you don't know when your next paycheck is coming. To add to that, more than two-thirds of military families live paycheck to paycheck, and many rely solely on the service member's income. So there's already a financial strain on military families that a shutdown would make worse. A shutdown could also impact both DOD and non-DOD services. For example, for DOD programs, a shutdown could impact childcare. So some on-base childcare facilities might close. Others might stay open until funding runs out. If there's a government shutdown, TRICARE, so DOD's healthcare system, will cover private sector healthcare and inpatient care at DOD facilities and acute and emergency outpatient care. At DOD, medical and dental facilities will continue. Additionally, wounded warrior medical care will not be impacted. However, current guidance does not address routine appointments. So if on-base healthcare workers are furloughed during a shutdown, appointments could be canceled. And then for food insecurity, a recent study found that more than 13% of military families relied on food banks or other food assistance in the past 12 months. A government shutdown could cause this number to increase as military families struggle to make ends meet and put food on the table. A shutdown could also impact SNAP and other food assistance programs that military families rely on. And to that last piece, the morale. So not being able to pay bills will impact morale. Like the 2018 shutdown that occurred around the holidays at the end of 2018 and into January 2019, this potential shutdown could happen near Thanksgiving. So holidays are expensive. About 55 million people travel for Thanksgiving. All the food for Thanksgiving adds up. So not being able to do that or travel, you know, could also impact morale. We're speaking with Federal News Network defense reporter Kirsten Eric. And so whenever one of these shutdowns occurs, it's always looking towards the troops than when uh, one side is trying to make the other side, I guess, guilt trip them into doing something about it because the troops are first and foremost on the state of mind when it comes to government workers not being paid. So what are lawmakers going to try to do to offset some of these problems that you just listed? Absolutely. So lawmakers have recently you know, introduce legislation, you know, for food, child care and spousal employment. And DOD is also making efforts to help military families in those same areas. And then going back to kind of, you know, you were mentioning how it impacts service members. So if there's no funding, 1.3 million service members would continue to serve without pay after November 17th. 
but this will also impact civilian DOD employees. So that would impact, you know, hundreds of thousands of civilian DOD employees who would be furloughed or have to work without pay. So Congress has several congressional members have introduced bills to ensure service members would get paid if there's a shutdown, but none of those have passed. Got it. And how have government shutdowns impacted military families in the past? As you said, this isn't the first (laughs) this isn't a lot of their uh, first time uh, dealing with this issue. Uh, What was it like for those folks uh, dealing with it before? Yeah. So the last time it impacted DOD was in 2013. But in 2018, it impacted Coast Guard, which is under the Department of Homeland Security. So DOD was funded, but DHS was not. So that meant that 41,000 Coast Guard members went 35 days without pay while still performing their job. So this go around, you have several military you know, service organizations that are advocating for Coast Guard to be included in defense appropriations. You have, for example, Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican from Texas, who introduced a bill in September to make sure that Coast Guard members get paid if there's a shutdown, but that has not become law. And kind of going back to the impact of this when this has impacted, whether it's DOD service members or Coast Guard service members, you know, it kind of going back to the financial aspect, you know, it's unclear how many service members or military families have had to take loans out. You know, I know that's one of the ways that service members will kind of look to bridge the gap till their next paycheck. I know Navy Federal Credit Union said during the 2018-2019 shutdown that it gave out loans to 20,000 members. So that kind of gives you a glimpse of how how much of an issue this this is and how it really impacts military families. And not to mention throwing in the global goings on right now, there are troops that are actually deployed at the moment. So that's just going to make things even more difficult and put even more strain, I would think. Absolutely. And it just kind of adds to like the the chaos of the time and kind of, you know, I would imagine for military families who have service members abroad that it's just, you know, another worry that they're adding to. All right. Well, we'll certainly keep an eye on this issue. Kirsten Eric, Federal News Network defense reporter. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. And you can find more of Kirsten's reporting on this at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to the Federal Drive also wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.